Hey, I'm Ernesto, and I play Truco on the Mourners of Lazar. I'm Ellie, and I play Dana. I'm Kevin, and I play Ruskell. I'm Michael. <laughs> Straight up. <laughs> He's Michael, everybody. He's Michael. Hey, and I'm your Dungeon Master, Philip. Welcome to uh, Savage Tales of Ebron. This will be our our second fireside chat. First in name, welcome to the uh, Gold Dragon Firesides. So tonight, we're just going to have a little chat, answer some questions that some people posted about Savage Worlds and our campaign here. First one we have, let's let's let everybody spend some time talking about your character. You know, what was the inspiration for the concept for your character? And, you know, some of your experience of translating that character concept into, into something mechanical using Savage Worlds. Right. Interesting. For me, for me, it was a bit easy. Like, in the sense, I was thinking of, I, I want to be, like, some sort of, a, I think I started with the concept of basically a mashup between Aladdin from the Disney movie and Jack Sparrow. And I started with that idea, kind of, because I wanted kind of like a, a thief that that also is like, I don't know, just tries to fool his way out, out of things. And I want him to be like really good at what he does, which is being, being a thief. And I, and I started with that concept. And the idea of overconfident like came really easily. I mean, in that sense, like Savage Wars, being able to to define those like clear clear hindrances of, of of certain like core aspects of your character, I think that's that's quite nice in terms of the personality, right? So yeah, I started with that concept and then started searching for the races that were some of the main races that were on Sire because we we started this uh, idea of a campaign as a pirate campaign and then we we went towards our origin or the origin of all our characters to be on sire or sire or whatever everyone wants to pronounce it and yeah it was searching for the races that were available there or were some of the races that were more most common there and shifter seemed to be one of them and and it seemed to like i, I like the idea of, of of shifter i don't really like humans or other like type of like races it's like i don't know i like like races that have color for some reason and my last campaign last campaign here i was a half going and uh, and yeah that's the race that's the class pseudo class because there's no class but the idea of the class and kind of the personality represented in in the game we can hear you early i don't at least i can't uh, oh. <laughs> <There> wow! <laughs> Since Ernesto's uh, kicking the humans when they're down, I'm yeah. gonna, I'm going to chit chat for a little <laughs> Dana here. You know, for for those of you playing the D and D, yes, I went for a human fighter. My original my original character concept for this campaign was I had every intention of completely ripping off the character Singe from Don Baskinthwaite's Dragon Below books. You know, just I love the idea of this veteran soldier with a sword in one hand and a fireball in the other. And yeah, I I just thought that was so engaging. And that's like, that's a bit of a trickier thing to pull off in D&D, but it's really quite easily doable in Savage Worlds. And uh, when I first told Philip what my concept was, hey, I want to, I want to be Singe. He just... He just said, so you're going to be on a ship and you want to cast fire magic? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, okay, cool. Go for it. <laughs> but, um, Actually, so if, I, if I remember correctly, I think you said specifically you wanted to be 
you wanted to have a sword in one hand and wield magic in the other hand. And I'm like, oh, so you want to be Singe. Oh, I, I've been wanting to play Singe for a while. I'd, um, I came very close to joining a PvP that was for, for Dungeons & Dragons to play by post as, as basically him and then didn't wind up doing it. But yeah, no, that was... So that was my original character concept. And, you know, the, the joy of wielding fireball on a ship at sea eventually fell by the wayside and got replaced by something equally enjoyable, I think. I don't want to spill too many uh, spill too many spoilers here but due to something we had as a table discussed prior to starting this campaign in terms of where a particular story beat is going to go i wound up reworking dane at least mechanically a little bit wherein she is going to wind up having a lot of leadership edges so the idea is that she's still a very competent sword fighter but is going to be designed as someone who can lead and inspire as well. In terms of in terms of personality, you know, I'm a big fan of of the philosophy to start from your hindrances. So, and I also want to be very different from my last character who was this very stubborn, arrogant, emotionally volatile, immature, very young man who was looking for affirmation all the, in all the wrong places and so with Dana, I wanted to go with someone who's... Could be a song there. What's that? <laughs> oh, just there could be a song there. There's a yeah. little, like, uh, tune that kind of came into my head as you're looking oh, you're gonna for, to, you know, you're gonna all have the to wrong places. <laughs> so, yeah, so so part of part of Dana's concept was to was to try something different, you know, from, from Jack, who I'd played for about a year. And go it and come from the idea of this character who who does have her feet more firmly on the ground who's you know who is more grown up who's more used to maybe in some ways even a little more cynical on the flip side of that having seen lots of horrors and not entirely maybe not being as well adjusted as she might think she is but the idea was just underlying idea was stability that she is someone who is inherently a stable person who, you know, who gets more grounded, who can be someone others can rely on, someone she wants other people to, you know, she wants other people to rely on her. And uh, so, yeah, going with this soldier who spent the war being a follower and now is going to try her hand at leading. So it seems we're going in our introduction order. I guess I'll talk about Russ. When when I f- got invited to the campaign and accepted, I'd already been listening to Savage Worlds podcasts and actual plays for a little bit now. And so I, I knew enough about the setting to be like, oh yeah, Deadlands is like Savage Worlds, you know, even though it's a even though it's technically a settingless system, it's very strongly associated with, you know, this weird, weird West setting and one thing that you know if i'm going to be playing savage worlds it's like i want to do stuff that i can't do very well in D. and one of the things that always kind of comes up that's really unique to eberron is the wand slinger and D just as as hard as it tries 
and just does not do wand slinging very well. And I'm like, here's a setting that is rooted in this, you know, mixture, or here's a, a system that's rooted in the, a setting that has this, you know, hybrid of magic and 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 pseudo realism in the the wild west aesthetic and here we are playing in a setting where one of the unique archetypes to that setting even within D&D is their kind of version of a gunslinger so how would that work and the answer is there's a lot of ways you could build a one slinger in savage worlds and from there it just kind of came down to finding something that i thought would be uh, fun. And I think coincidentally, right around this time is when Savage Pathfinder released. And so just looking at a few of the options there, uh, Wizard kind of really stuck out at me. Because with the power modifiers, I think kind of to one of the problems with the, the wand slinger in D&D is that it just eventually falls off. You can be a, a wand slinger and, and have a great time from like levels one to five, whether you're an artificer or a warlock or an artificer, but eventually just your cantrips are not your, your bread and butter damage anymore as you start to get more and more leveled spells. But it feels like, and I could be wrong, I only kind of just started with Savage Worlds that that amount of time gets stretched out and I can I can ride the bolt spell, you know, from now through the vast majority, if not entirety of my advances and just keep using power modifiers to keep getting more and more out of it. But it's still based on that that foundation. And so, yeah, I decided to roll with the wizard with an with an evoker to kind of get that sort of school synergy with the the bolt spell that is going to become Russ's bread and butter. And then, and if I can interrupt, what's so the wizard in Savage Pathfinder has some limitations, doesn't it? You can choose to take them. There's you can choose to be a specialist, which basically conveys no bonuses or malices, or you can choose one school that you favor in. But if you do, you then must choose two schools which are disfavored and in your favored school you get a free so anytime Ruskell will cast uh, an evocation spell he gets a free reroll but if he casts a divination or illusion spell which are the two schools that i picked they i think cost one additional power point and i think he takes a minus one to them i'd have to go back and, and double check i have no intention of taking a divination or illusion spell or no sorry illusion or enchantment are the two that that i are the two schools that I had disfavored to Russ, which is interesting only because Seer, the nation, is normally supposed to specialize in those two schools of magic. And I don't know if that's going to play into Russ's story at all about how he feels in terms of his national identity. I think there is some some interesting fun to be had there, especially with Seer's relation to the way that it uses soldiers. They were the the forefront of using like Warforged, basically to have people fight their war for them. And so there's probably some some commentary, some juicy commentary to be had there. And maybe we'll get into that at some point. But but yeah. And so far, I mean it's it's hard to say whether or not the wand slinging has has come out in in the game. Well, I think we'll go more into that with the next with the yeah. next topic, next yeah. question. So hold and on. If I do remember correctly, when you were starting to come up with the idea and building the character, you were chatting with me a bit, and I was just like, "Well, you could do wand slinging this way, or you could do it mm-hmm. this way, or you could do it that way. Depends on how you want to do it." 
Yeah. I think I gave you like four or five different ways you could build them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, we had a discussion about, I know Artificer came up. I remember asking about there are ways to do wand slinging where you use uh, magic items that have their own PowerPoint batteries, which I thought was awesome. But I also think for the way that our campaign starts, because we knew it was starting with a, a press gang. That would be a little bit more of a, a, a difficult situation and finding stuff that plays well with edges. One nice thing about either going with like a, a homebrewed artificer or with the, the built-in wizard edges is that your the edges work and they, they do some really great stuff. So we decided to go with trappings. And so Russ's wands right now are focused into his trappings, which means mechanically speaking, he cannot cast his spells without the wands that are tied to specifically his evocation spells or the two that he has trapped that way. So, yeah. So what about you, Michael? Well, for Torlin, I didn't really put a lot of thought into it. <laughs> no, no, that's, that's a joke. I will say, I, I mean, I, whenever I approach a character, I try not to have like a huge idea of what the character's like, you know, path or journey is going to be like. I, I want to have him have some sort of motivation, some sort of like hooks that I can give the DM, but I want to try and keep it simple. The character that I ran for our previous campaign here that Ellie and Ernesto and I were in before Kevin had joined, you know, I kind of ran into this issue where I had all of these like ideas that I tried to pile into one character. And, you know, as Bilbo would say, he, I, he just felt like butter spread over too much bread. And I, I had some trouble kind of hashing out all these sometimes conflicting character details. And you're like, well, how should I react in this situation? So I wanted Torlin to be a little bit more simple. Now, unfortunately, I don't think I've made it that case. As, as the character has developed, I was having a, a discussion with Kevin and I was kind of able to like break down in my head as I was talking to him. And thanks. This was a, it was very beneficial kind of just be like, okay, yeah, there's these three primary motivators for how Torlin acts. And so now in the future, I can have them in, in my mind. Of, and of course, you know, the first one, first and foremost, is his, his bond with Dana. He has this vow that he made to Dana's grandfather that he would look after Jorin's uh, offspring in the future and, and make sure that not that they didn't get into trouble but that they would have somebody to protect them and watch out for them. So that's that's the primary motivator for Torlin. As far as how I've built him mechanically, it's a similar kind of deal with like how I approach a character. I don't like to, with Savage Worlds, like make a here's advancement one through advancement 20 and here's what I'm going to take. I just kind of wing it. You know, I'll, I'll kind of mark down a couple of edges during our session zero. I just kind of went through and he's like, okay, here's all the edges that might be interesting for Torlin. And because he has an arcane background, I also chose, okay, here's the powers that he has access to at certain ranks. And here's the ones that'll come at uh, veteran rank, which is coming up or is it seasoned? Sometimes I have confusion with that. I think veteran is the is the second rank. It's and the third rank. It's not yeah, a seasoned veteran. Season. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, and those are like, I just went through and, okay, here are all of the uh, bard tr 
powers that I think could I could make trappings for. And then we'll see if any of them kind of fit with how the story is developing, and I'll choose them later on. So that's kind of how I approach the, uh, the powers. Originally, like I thought, okay, my very first edge I'm going to take is going to be bodyguard. But then as we played, I was very quickly found out that, you know, Dana doesn't want a bodyguard. And so I should definitely not take that edge because I won't get a lot of use out of it. She wants to do her own thing. And, and Torlin is, is not a protector. He is, you know, somebody who's going to stand by her instead. So I took Berserk because that's a lot cooler. And that's <laughs> not something I had planned from the get-go. That was uh, just something I kind of discovered uh, about the character as we went along. Yeah, I mean, uh, best offense, best defense is a, a great offense, so makes sense. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I think, I think Berserk tracks really well with with the things you've established about him so far. Yeah, also, I believe like you took Berserker after the first fight that we had mm-hmm. when you like yeah. give like a, a head kick or headbutt to yeah, to this. yeah, yeah. Yeah, after that first fight, Berserker was just like, yeah, that fits. That's Torlin. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. makes sense. I, there's actually a a Bardic power that unlocks that seasoned i suppose it is that lets you cast you know basically berserk on yourself and maybe your allies too uh, and that's what i wanted but you know that would have that would have been five advancements away so we're not going to wait for that <laughs> yeah, i think um i think i'll say since i don't have a character but kind of like development of the campaign and stuff how i went into the things was i think it's important as a dungeon master to play a campaign I enjoy, but also have the, all the players bought into the campaign because nothing will derail a campaign more than the DM playing a campaign they want to, but the players don't. And so to start this, I threw up a poll with everybody in, in the group saying, I think given three different options of three different types of campaigns, I was interested in running next and let them vote on which ones they wanted. And uh, so we came up with fire campaign that way. Because it's one I was interested in, and this one everybody else was interested in. Although the interesting aspect about that is that after, as we started talking, my original thought of it was certainly more ruthless pirate campaign, kind of more of your classic piracy and whatnot. But as I was talking, as we began talking about the new campaign, it became clear that you all were, weren't really interested in being super ruthless pirates. So there became a need to kind of like change the focus. And that's, that's the idea of all being tied to Seer and maybe looking for a new homeland for the survivors as like something. The planting Miko would certainly earn us a lot of glory. <laughs> Just putting it I, out there. I mean, you're not wrong. <laughs> I mean, to, to speak to, to how the, the pitch evolved, I think, I think I actually wound up driving that forward a little bit because we actually had five different campaign pitches to vote on, and we were supposed to rank, you know, choose, basically do a ranked voting, you know, what's your first choice, what's your second choice, and so on. And uh, the the Pirates pitch was my dead last choice, and the only reason I voted on it was because it was the only one Ernesto voted for. He was, like, not going to play the ranked voting game. He was just like, no, I want to be a pirate. And I was like, okay, well, I, I have a problem with that. Sorry. I don't like playing evil. Sorry, not sorry. Sorry, not sorry. You know, I I won't play an evil character who just like you know makes people miserable for the hell of it. And I was, I I, you know, I think I was kind of clear that I I really want to stay at this table. I love playing with you guys, but I I can't play a you know straight up 
steal and murder and just do your own selfish shit kind of campaign. And um, I have a question. Could you play a character like Torlin? Because in my mind, certainly, you know, the action that Torlin has recently taken to murder somebody in cold blood, regardless of, you know, uh, who that person was, not necessarily the nicest fellow, but could you play a character? I would call that evil personally. You know, could you play a character like that that would make that sort of decision? I'll circle back to that in a moment. I just want to finish this this initial thought, which which is basically to say this goes back to this table has fantastic buy-in, not just for you know, not just for the stories presented to us, but for each other, because you were all willing to make that shift from the initial pitch to keep me at the table and say, yeah, we can, you know, we can do something. We can still get a similar kind of, kind of framework, but we can come at it from a part, you know, from a point that doesn't make Ellie uncomfortable. So that was really awesome. And now that we're, you know, a couple months deep in the campaign at the time recording this, I'm having a blast. Yeah, no, I I believe that the campaign is better for it. It gives a lot of of richness in terms of the background of, of the characters and I don't know. I like it. And when I, when we first, sorry, respond to what Michael yeah, was was asking. Yeah, yes, yes. You know, could I play? Could I play a character who would chuck someone over the side of the ship? And Which pull wait, I, I we didn't like say explicitly like it was an evil act. I don't want to argue with the fact that he threw someone. I don't consider water, it an but, evil act. Yeah, but it's like depends of of the perspective. Like you, what do you. Why, why you did it? Why Torland? Well, evil, evil like, has a lot of different, you know, shades to it. So it's yeah. definitely on a lower shade because this was somebody who was in a gang with people who professed to be rapists, rapists and murderers, right? So yeah, like, of course, you know, they were gonna come to a head at some point. Yeah, no, I mean, this is like in Torland's mind, it was like I can, I want to save the ship, I want to save my friends, so I need to do some kind of exchange with the devourer. So it's like. Yes, like, yes. He absolutely we are, we are respects that. And, and there is a, a huge amount of superstition about these yeah. these gods. Yeah, yeah. With that in mind, Ellie. Uh, yeah, so you know, to answer the question, especially if, if we're coming from that coming from that motivation of Torlin, you know, Torlin believed this was this would help save his friends. Would I play a character who would who would murder someone in more or less cold blood in order to in order to save people I cared about? I, I think Jack in Secrets of the Ashen Crown a hundred percent would have done that had push ever come to shove. Um, he was very much that kind of character, but there there weren't a lot of opportunities that that really came up for him to be quite that ruthless to people outside of the party. You know, he was, he was quite mean to a lot of his, a lot of his friends, but not a lot came up for him to really go off on, on enemies aside from near the end of the campaign when he wound up the interrogation turned into a torture. That was the thing that happened. But, yeah. And uh, I, I kind mean, of and the react, the, you know, the, act- the attitude like the- to take a shower afterwards, but I yeah, felt yeah. it perfectly in line with Jack and, and his thought process and his personality and his morals or lack thereof. Yeah. So yeah, again, part of coming into this campaign with Dana was I want to do a 180 from that and play someone a little more decent. 
<laughs> for, you know, the next however long. All right. Before we jump in, I want to ask you, Philip, in terms of inspirations, like now that we're on the talk, I, I know that you, uh, something without, I don't know if you have any particular inspirations with, with the, besides the idea of, of a pirate campaign, or if you had, like without spoiling, of course, like if there is something like you, like the, the thread of the campaign has, has any clear inspiration or, or just like, just trying to think in more in general of a pirate type story or no, usually, I mean, all the, all the options that I gave you guys to vote on were they're based in some published adventures. I, when I, back when I started playing D&D a long time ago, I homebrewed most everything, including the world. And now I've gotten older, I realize I don't have that much time. <laughs> so I generally like to start with a published adventure and then change it to my needs because I find that easier, takes less time, comes up with a good story, you know, particularly as, as the, the players and their characters interact with it. And I get to know the characters and the backstories and various different things. I change it significantly based on that. So yeah, there's, there's some published content that this is based on, although it's based on um, what three, two, two or three different settings, numerous different adventures. I'm going to kind of like mishmash it all together. And, and some of it's going to depend on the direction you guys take. So we'll see. I've got lots of options and lots of, lots of ideas already brewing based on who your characters are already. And that's interestingly actually a good segue into the into the next real question about, you know, where do you think where do you imagine that your character is going to go narratively and or mechanically? <clears throat> Interesting. We don't have to be going order, by the way. I, I just yeah. started off because I, I and felt I like, like this it, question. But, yeah, and I like yeah. this question mostly as a nice bookend for coming back to this question at the end of the campaign and see where you imagined your character going and where they actually ended up going. Now that Torland doesn't know where to go, <laughs> at least for where for what Michael told so far, <laughs> yeah. it's an easy question for me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ellie, Ellie, does does they they now will probably take some spell casting or arcane background, given what you just told? Well, or this is a tricky question for me to answer about where I see her going mechanically and narratively because. There are some surprises in store, not just for our listeners, but for you guys as well that Philip and I have discussed. So there's there's some stuff under there that is going to emerge hopefully in, in the coming weeks. Mm. And we'll see where that what direction that takes in. But I guess the I guess the generic answer I can give, you all you all know that she's going to be building up leadership edges as she goes and Part of her, you know, part of her personal goal is to, you know, help establish a new homeland for the survivors of Seer and also just narratively and mechanically to grow as someone who grows into her vow hindrance, which is, which I've flavored as, you know, she wants to, she wants to be a protector. She wants to help her friends and her crew realize their goals and dreams, help them get out of their, you know, any problems they might be in and kind of put people first in that, put others first in that regard. So with, with some of the skills and edges I'm, I've got planned out going forward, that is what I'm building towards for her to grow into, you know, right now, early on in the campaign, she's kind, she's 
leaning towards that, but she's not quite found that yet where, you know, she stepped up to, to try to save Jake's magpie on, you know, on like their first night on board and immediately got on, on the officer's shit list. And then, you know, then further has been trying to, to make friends when we went crabbing out on the reef again, trying to step into that role of a leader and a guide and a defender. So that in broad strokes, that is where I see her going in specific strokes. I hope we find out soon because I'm really excited for you guys <laughs> to find that out too. That's that's really interesting. Also, yeah. I mean, if if you think that Dana is in the shit list of the officers, I mean, where is Truco in that sense? Yeah, he's like, just hit by Scorch uh, like, in particular. May the devourer have mercy on his yeah. soul. <laughs> <laughs> oh scourge. I don't I don't think Mr. Logger the Prince could care less about Truco being a smart ass. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I also I mean I thought of now that we are talking about it, I also thought of Truco like uh, not much of a of a talker or something that persuasive, more like like kind of a yeah, kind of a charlatan to some extent. Like every, I, I picture him as like as someone like talks a lot, but everyone knows that he's full of shit, and he's the only one thinking that he's a mastermind that is convincing everyone, right? So in that sense, for example, in terms of advances, yeah. When you do that, though, that's I think that's a way that you're playing to your overconfident hindrance in a yeah. utterly fantastic way. You're a genius in your own mind. I mean, he has a D4 in smarts. I don't know, <laughs> you guys, but but I, I I need to show that up a bit more every now and then. Uh, I think you're playing I think it wonderfully. I think yeah, it's exactly. What you're talking about, the D4 in smarts combined with the overconfident hindrance, is exactly what you have just described. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. you are also, showing it out in an outstanding way. I bow yeah. down to Ernesto. <laughs> I mean, that's. I mean, in that sense, I know what I won't take in advances because I want to keep kind of that that character going at least for a while. I don't know if maybe there. Are, if I, 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 I like the idea of 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 a character progression in terms of like like a narrative sense. But mm. I, the first thing that comes to mind for for Truk, I don't know why, but I wanted to make it like a really powerhouse in terms of combat uh, and the, so every uh, i mean on the contrary to to torwan or michael I, I just i just thought about like all the 20 advances already but just in terms of combat as a start i don't know where will will the character go and i probably certainly surely will change that but i just trying to make him like I think we we talk about it's like I'm trying to make like a really rogue that tries to kill something before anyone notice he's there. So trying to play like he he's dumb, but he he's really good at what he does mm -hmm. or what he thinks he like he he, he like grew up in, in needing to be good in that sense. So yeah, it's just just pumping a lot into agility and just trying to pick up all the rogue edges from the Pathfinder a Savage War combination, right? And and yeah, just and trying to pick up like all the, the things that boost damage. Also, and I don't want to get maybe further into a possible talk topic that we will discuss later, or maybe not. I don't know, but I really wanted him to have a lot of bennies 
And so in terms of like taking luck and take it like uh, and use uh, those pennies like on, for combat purposes, because I kind of like him failing at social tasks. So in that sense, oh, what I do with the pennies? So I want to use them in combat and to, for him to be really good at that. So like taking luck and taking like some things that help me uh, succeed more with luck. I think there is one like Elan, I think it's called the edge. Like the edge is for free yeah. rules on different combat skills. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I don't I, I, I mean, that's where I started at least. Let's see where it where it goes, right? That was something I was looking at with when I was building Rascal mechanically as well, is kind of like how do I want to represent his his soldier background and one way was level-headed, which gives you an additional card draw on initiative. And another was looking at the, the Benny economy and going with something like Luck and Elan and whatever that um, edge is that lets you like give Bennies to teammates, common bond. common bond, and just really kind of just sort of looking at the, the needs of the battleground and saying, you're low on Bennies, have a Benny you know, and then looking at tactician and natural leader. So like everybody in the team gets, you know, everybody in in the leadership range gets an additional card and sort of trying to manipulate the the battlefield almost like on a, almost on like a commander shepherd level from mass effect where it's like, you're just, you know, you're the one who kind of like sees everything and starts like pointing things out. But in this case, mechanically representing it with, with cards and bennies and interacting with, the 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 combat system on a mechanical level but the the route that i ended up taking was level headed and i've been really happy with it so far and i think with a couple more advances and edges it's going to start getting really fun cuz we're going to start leaning more into the the evoker side of things where where like one of the advances or one of the edges i'm looking at is power surge and so the idea is that Russ wants to essentially vomit all of his power points into, you know, one or two big spells and then start fishing for jokers, get 10 power points back on a joker and then just kind of roll through that. And it really just comes down to this feeling of like riding the lightning. So that's kind of where I see Russ mechanically going. But in terms of like his his narrative, this is something I was talking with Michael about where like I think the idea for Russ is that I really want to take the idea of the the knight in shining armor and just run it through the ringer just shove it through the blender kill it drag it through the mud and see kind of what comes out on the far side take somebody that was that for a while and just slam his face into the dirt and so there's there's a little bit of like a Mal Reynolds sort of thing going on even in in session one, where it was like, you want to take off your your coat, and Russ is like, I'm not taking off the coat because that has a, a certain kind of of meaning to him, and it's it's almost like there's even though Seer has lost, there's still this question of, are you still fighting? And that's you know, there's not a there's not an answer to that. It really is a question. There's always the possibility of getting Russ back in the sky, you know, with just a couple edges with with Beastmaster and Beast Bond. I might have to take, depending on size requirements, I think I might have to take Beastmaster like two or three times uh, if I actually wanted to like get a hippogriff back. But that might be something fun somewhere in like the 
the veteran or if we get that far legendary advances and get Russ back, uh, get Russ's wings back. That's a path. It wasn't something that I had considered when making him. And then all of a sudden Phil offhanded, I think in like the big Eberron discord, it was like, yeah, you could, you could do that. And I'm like, oh, I could do that. But I think for now, really like right now, I'm really kind of playing around with the the combat system because I really, I, I really like it. So looking at things like improved level headed power surge, things that really play around with Joker fishing. And like I said, riding that lightning playing into Russ's spell casting and really just kind of like forking bolts out all over the the battlefield is really kind of where I, I see Russ kind of going and and getting stronger as a, an evoker, even though he has a D6 in fighting, which is just, you know, a fun little side deal. So he can hold himself up on him. D6 hmm? is decent. Yeah. I think that's yeah. kind of the definition. And it's something that like, if I was to try and build Russ in in that other system that, you know, that we don't talk about. Like, the system that shall not be named. Yeah, the system, the system that we that we won't name. Like having basic competency in fighting is like you roll a wizard in in fifth edition or in any D D edition, and it's like, dude, don't don't go and get in a bar fight because you're gonna get a splinter and die. Yes, the either or. Um, and you're kinda you're kind of pulling off that vibe of my my original character plan of Sword in one hand, a spell in the other. Um, but yeah, so I think that's so. Yeah, Russ is getting pulled in a couple different areas right now, but really, just like I'm more interested, kind of narratively, in in seeing where like his ideals of knighthood kind of take him, and if he's going to just totally leave it in the dirt, like you know Mal Reynolds, but keep the coat, or if that's going to be something that he gets pulled back into. And that's, you know, going to depend on a lot in the story because there are definitely different ways you could go. Nice. Yeah. Also, a comment on what you say, because, for example, I, I think in the group, like, for example, I think I have the quick, I mean, Truco has the quick edge, which mm -hmm. like takes two cards if one is below five. And I think Torlan has a hesitate, which is like mm -hmm. to take a new card if, if the, the one is like higher and you have level headed. So we are like, and I think it doesn't, we are kind of like all, and I, and I thought of Truco as like a, a trying to fish jokers or try to fish good cards. But I think there are like two characters or three characters even having that idea in mind. It's, it's, they are totally complementing each other because you're, you are fish, you are going faster through the deck. Mm -hmm. And if one gets a joker, everyone gets a new Benny. So it's like good for everyone. So mm -hmm. it's not like in that sense, that's, that's another good thing about Savage Worlds, which is like, that aspect of that mechanical aspect of the game that one will say, oh, like uh, just one can go for that kind of a strategy. No, everyone can go for that strategy. And it doesn't like uh, step over another another one, another character. There certainly is a lot of like good tactics. It kind of it reminds me of like, uh, I've never actually played Pathfinder as a tabletop, but I played video games that use a Pathfinder system. And like, you know, they have these teamwork feats, which from what I've heard, you know, at a table, it's very rare for anybody to ever take teamwork feats, but they work very well if, if you wind up doing it. So it's kind of neat that Savage Worlds has, you know, these sorts of teamwork feats, which will work together even if you're not intentionally really intending to do so between characters. To me, it seems kind of like the leadership feats are, are sort of similar to teamwork stuff from Pathfinder. As far as Torland goes, so... Refreshing my memory of what the question was. 
Where do I think Torland is going to go narratively and mechanically? Well, you know, keeping it simple, you know, he's going to follow as far as what Torland's motivation is outside of that. He wants glory. That's, I mean, it's it's not like a a definitively defining trait of him, but he wants to make a good story. And a part of that is is being put in incredible situations and scenarios or being a party to them. So he's he's going to go where the story goes and definitely get into trouble along the way. I certainly see Torlin as uh, a character, you know, out of the party. Well, I guess I don't really know too much about Truco or Rusko yet, but, you know, if if somebody were to put a cursed item in front of one of the individuals of the party, probably Torlin would be the worst one to, you know, to, to tempt that in front of. As far as where he would go mechanically, yeah, I mean, he's just, he's just going to be built as a combat powerhouse, and there might be some, some development. Depending on how the story goes, I'll kind of go down into the bardic arcane background a little bit more. There are some interesting powers that I want to take, but I don't really have any substantial plans along the way. Certainly, I have the idea of making Torlin a, a tank in a sort of a way. You know, there isn't really, a, as far as I know, and maybe Phil can comment on this, but in Savage Worlds, there isn't some way to basically force a group of enemies or a enemy to duel you. But what I do have is edges that make myself more vulnerable. And I can't imagine that the DM won't try to take advantage of that or his characters that he's playing won't try to take advantage of that when I get up in their face with a headbutt. So, you know, Torlin is aiming to be the center of attention in, in combat as so yeah, often. As well. Yes, yes. <laughs> so often in, in RPG games, and, you know, I kind of see this as, as a DM in, in fifth edition sometimes. You know, you'll have somebody who's trying to to protect the squishies in the back line, but they don't really have any way of of preventing an enemy from getting back to the poor old wandslinger Ruskal mechanically. The way I see it is is the best thing to do is to just make a narrative reason for for that to happen that uh, somebody would want to attack Torlin. All right, everyone. Hey. Tune in next week when Torlin gets a uh, Delkir symbiont inside himself and then dies in the first round. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah, that's just a very good point. Like, I, I've always wanted to see that in a campaign, and there's not like a lot of good reasons why somebody would just be like, oh, yeah, let's let this worm creature crawl up my leg and embed itself in my shoulder. Like, why would a character ever do that? Unless you're a crazy dwarf from the Moorhold. You're you're trying to give me more gray hairs than I already have, I swear. And so switching gears here a little bit. Because I love question, Philip, do you have, what's, where do you see the campaign going narratively (laughs) or mechanically? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I can't answer that at all. You know, like we mentioned <laughs> a little it. bit, like we mentioned a little bit, there, there's there, to this whole thing, there is definitely a clear act one. And the act one is definitely, you know, on some rails of sort and is going to go in a particular direction. And once act one is over, I'm at a loss. I have, you know, I, I've got some plans and some ideas of uh, things that are going to happen, but it's truly going to depend on on you guys so much about what you want to do, you know, 
do you hear the hooks that I give out or do you make up your own or, you know, I mean, there's just so many, so many possibilities and different ways that it can go that I have, I truly have no real idea. You know, I've got some, I've got some general possibilities that I think it could go and we'll see if it goes one of those routes, if it goes kind of one of those routes or it goes a completely different route. I have no real idea. After act one is over, it's, you know, I'll be curious to see the arc of the campaign myself. Okay. Okay. Another follow-up question. Do you, you were expecting how, how level of craziness in terms of like characters and, and situations and shenanigans were you expecting? And if we are succeeding or under like under you were overestimating us or underestimating? Neither really. because I wasn't expecting okay. anything per se. Oh, okay. um, I would say certainly <laughs> you have been the biggest surprise Ernesto because Truco is so completely different than are you get is just astonishing. I mean, every session you say stuff that continually surprises me because are you get would have never said or done anything like that. You know, I, I, I think, think that's why, that's why I started with the overconfident one because like, I don't want to like, yeah, I want to go for another, go to the opposite route. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know. Let's see where it goes. I don't know. I like the crazy that Torland's bringing to the table. And yeah, I think there's a, there was a certain level of that craziness that Avello brought to the table as well. So it's. Oh yeah. Yeah. Also, I also have to mention, like, I love not having to be sometimes the guy that needs to stick the group together and try to like say something. Oh, we have to stick together and go through this. No, (laughs) I can just relax and just be a crazy guy that goes around doing nothing. And I leave that to Dana and Dana can be like the character that tries to be decent enough. It would (laughs) be a difficult challenge for me to play like I should, you know, the next game I'll play like a cleric or something. There's just a very simple, soft-spoken, you know, cleric of the sovereign host. And see if I can manage that, because I don't think I can. <laughs> I'm just going to say, it might, be a, it might be the splashy characters who, who stand out and get the most uh, flash. But speaking on my own behalf, and perhaps on Kevin's as well, it's always the quiet ones you got to watch out for. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I have to say, yeah. I, like my characters, like go like trying to like all oh, being so like uh, fashioning or something. And there's a lot of going in the background in, in terms of like the plotting and and just I don't know. Just I like I like Roscoe in the sense of, like or all, all the like small actions that he takes and all like all his like his intentions to be subtle and and it's like and and there is a lot of a lot of like. Oh, I don't, I, I don't know what what's going on in Roscoe's head, right? And 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 that's that question is 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 quite interesting in that sense. That always, I've I've heard that a couple of times from a couple of different people now, and I'm like, Roscoe is the most simple person out there and straightforward in my head. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know, man. I, I, it's, it's like Ellie said, like the quiet ones. Right? They are like, I trust all you guys. If, if that's what you're picking up, then I mean, that's great. That's the, the D8 and smarts coming through, I guess. <laughs> so switching gears away from the characters in the campaign specifically, wanted to talk about uh, a Savage Worlds topic, kind of providing some of that to anybody who's listening to kind of help them out with Savage Worlds. And <clears throat> one of the ones that came up, Ernesto alluded to a little bit that certainly 
always been big on on my list is the Benny economy, you know, because Savage Worlds has these bennies, you know, players used, you get to re-roll almost anything, really. You get to re-roll damage rolls, any trait rolls, you get to use it to influence the plot, the story. And if you read Suede, Suede specifically calls out saying, be generous with the bennies, give your players lots of bennies. And the thing that they called out, I have absolutely seen completely because they say explicitly in there that, you know, if you give the players a lot of bennies, what they end up spending their bennies on are the things that they think is important. And if you give them few bennies, they'll tend to, they'll end up hoarding them, saving them for those special roles in the evening, particularly if combat's uh, pretty high on the list. And I've certainly found that's been incredibly true. I've played in a number of campaigns as well where, the GMs have not handed out any bennies at all during an entire session. And I'm stuck with the three that I start with. And that's player. I hate that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I'm fairly generous as, as a DM with, with bennies to you all. I think, I think you're usually getting like three to six bennies each, each session. Well, if I've never gotten that many, but, but yeah, I know it. I think the the flow of bennies at this table is really, really good. And and like you said, and I'd actually touched on this shameless plug in an article I wrote about the Benny economy back near the start of Secrets of the Ashen Crown, was that yeah, we this table, we spend our bennies on the things that are the most important to us. You know, I've seen I've seen people burn all their bennies trying to get one big solid hit, you know, to take down, to take down enemy wild card since we don't play with wound cap. I, you know, I've also seen players and I've done this myself spend like all four or five of their bennies on things like a single notice roll or a single persuasion roll, because whatever is at the other end of that role is profoundly important to our character at the time. And but yeah, there is also the comfort that we know there's more where that came from. And and yeah, you know, as players, there's a certain point where you have to work for it. Like, I, you know, I'm not good with with quips like Michael and Ernesto are. And they'll often, you know, they'll get bennies for a good quip. So uh, and they, you know, they do work for it with their hindrances and role playing as well. But uh, yeah, there's there's work we got to put in during those bennies sometimes. And that's cool too, because it just makes them more satisfying, more rewarding. Yeah, I would, I would add, I would just add, like you can do, use your bennies for something important, or you can just tunnel vision and just use your bennies for like a notice check that doesn't have anything to do with the story. It's like a like a simple like, hey, do a notice check, and then just spend like three, four bennies trying just to get a good roll, which. I don't know. To me, sometimes it has happened, like to 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 waste many. But it's something that you learn over time, like during. And it's it's a good. It's also like I like the idea of starting as a player, as a suede player, to to start just wasting bennies instead of just the idea of hoarding. Just start from from the bottom to the top instead of like oh, I want to 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 keep everything for myself. But yeah, sorry, give me give me time to to formulate my thought. Being the the new blood here at the table. For me, coming out of fifth edition, uh, the the Benny economy has really kind of been great in giving me that 
mattress or cushion or springboard or I don't know what the best analogy would be to where I'm not thinking necessarily about my character's chances of successes. I'm thinking about what I want to do, knowing that, you know, in the case of a bad role, I can always, you know, I've got this resource that can give me, you know, more chances to, to get it done. And it's, it's, I feel like making me or allowing me to be more proactive and strategic about the actions and the choices that I want to make rather than just, you know, putting, feeling like everything is going into, to one role. And if it, if it doesn't go through, then that's the way it goes. Yeah. And I guess maybe that's where everyone is seeing this idea that like Russ has always got, you know, uh, a plan formulating in the background. But it's certainly the the Benny economy that gives me that sort of confidence. I also really liked when there was there was one session where like we all just by the end of it were just so dry on Benny's. And to me, maybe it's just the kind of the, the way that the the story has flowed, but like I felt exhausted by the end of that session. And so like the the Benny economy really kind of feels almost like uh, a second form of character energy in that sense. And that by the time we got to the end of it, it's like, well, I don't know what this is going to be, but we're going to roll it. Yeah, I, I think that was the session where we had just come off of the dramatic task involving a few people overboard in a winter squall, because I, I remember that, you know, I know, I think most of us came off, if not all of us came off it with a lo- at least one level of fatigue, plus zero bennies, plus there was like, hey, there's half an hour left in this session. Well, let's go. <laughs> We're doing this. Yet, I definitely feel that tiredness along with you. Yeah. And I don't, yeah, Phil wasn't there for the first roundtable that we did, but I mentioned that one of the things that I like about systems like Savage Worlds is the sort of tactile tie into character ability. And in Savage Worlds, that's represented, of course, by your differing die sizes. When you have a D10 or D12 in something, you're physically rolling a different dice than, you know, a D4 minus two uh, for your untrained things. And so you get that tactile representation of, of character skill. So even if you fail, you still you still have this like physical thing that reinforces ability. And so like by the time we got to the end of that session, it's just like, I'm I'm hurting for Benny's here and like just having that that mechanical representation of fatigue and I know there is a fatigue system in the game but that sort of narrative fatigue was something that was just really cool and something that that other systems just I feel like don't pull off so cleanly and neatly and I really enjoyed that moment. Yeah, I mean, it's neat that you know the classic thing being that you know, it's always the casters running out of spell slots with, you know, with this game of attrition and resource management. That's really just for the casters, you know, in Savage Worlds, everyone can run out of uh, out of that resource that they, they like to use a lot and perhaps depend on to some degree. Yeah, it's interesting. It's also like, I don't know, if, if you think about it, like, for example, fatigue in this game is, isn't as punishing as in 5e, for example. So th- that level of like capping what a character can do in a certain amount of time without getting any rest or without getting into another session, right? And and uh, like Benny feels like an upgrade of your character, right? Like your character can do more. So if it's like a positive that you have always and sometimes turns into not having Benny's and then like a neutral thing, 
instead of what usually is in other games where it's like you feel like your character should be at this level and then it's all down from there right mm -hmm. you have all the capacity for your spell slot you have all, no fatigue you can and then it's all down from there contrary to Benny's, which is like oh i start really like feeling really great about my possibilities and then just oh my oh shit oh shit i don't have more things to use and, and i don't know it feels, it feels nice i also wanted to add like for for rascal like i believe like your reckless hindrance informs a lot of what you want to benny i don't know if, if that's the case if you see that in your character or or if this helps in some shape or form to say um this, this is my objective so i will be, i will use every benny that i have I don't know. This. I I've never. I don't think I've ever thought about it other than maybe like once or twice. And that was like there was the drinking contest in in this last session, but that didn't necessarily inform what I I spent Benny's on more than it just kind of affected my choice to engage with the challenge in the first place or to keep going in the challenge in the first place. Like, but then once he's in there, yeah, I kind of got to spend Benny's. You know, I, I spend I spend Benny's. What is Phil? What's that saying? Like, I don't I don't plan for my players' problems. I plan for their solutions. Like, yeah, I don't not... I don't spend Benny's to get Ruskell into problems. I spend I get Ruskell into problems, and then I have to spend Benny's to get him out of them. I think that's a pretty standard uh, standard philosophy, at least at this table. <laughs> Do you have uh, any thoughts, Michael? Before I. Let's go to the next question. I don't have anything to add. Well, there's not necessarily the next question. I was just going to continue on that because watching the new campaign three of Critical Role has really kind of made me see something more about the Bennies and particularly how it relates to the Eberron campaign setting, right? Because Eberron was built with this whole idea that the players are heroes, right? The original system had action points. You know, they've tried to, I think they've tried to implement that again with these. Uh, I think in, in Rising from the Last War, they're kind of referring to them as the, like the intuition dies from the uh, dragon-marked races. But what I've kind of really seen watching that is every time I can I can see a player thinks one of the actions they're going to take is really important, and to watch them succeed or fail on one roll and have no option to change that is just kind of like every time I see them like fail on something that was really clearly was really important to them as a player or to their character in that moment – and they fail at the roll and can't re-roll. And it's just like, oh, wow, that sucks. Because I've gotten so used to you all having the option to choose to something different. And what it really makes me see in, in Ebron is this, you know, this free-flowing Benny economy really allows you to create the epic kind of character that you want, you know, to find those important moments for you to shine and be the hero, whether it's, you know, in a social situation or dramatic task or a combat situation or something. It's made me appreciate that even more, how how well the Bennies match, you know, the heroic and epic nature of an Eperon campaign setting. Until you get snake eyes. Yeah. And we won't go into that topic. That we'll go, we'll go into that topic another time. And Ellie just wrote an article about that this week to come out. Go check it out. Yeah, although who knows when this episode's coming out. That's um, true. I will say I I have noticed that you guys of players do more. I, I've noticed that you're not you're you're taking fewer times where you spend all your bennies on one roll. I've noticed that you as a group of player more often you're just spending one benny or two bennies, and then you're like, nah, 
I'm going to save, save my bennies for the next thing, for the next important role, rather than just one role for the evening. And I think you all, all of you are also getting excellent at helping me as the, the dungeon master award my bennies by calling out when other players should get bennies. Because that's certainly one of the most challenging things as uh, the dungeon master is with everything going on, tracking when you role play your hindrance as well, or when you do something excellent or whatever, to, and, and to think, oh, okay, I, I need to give them a Benny for that. It's super hard to track. It's something that I've had to constantly train myself at. And having you all jump in more often saying, oh, hey, what they did, just they should get a Benny for that. Or even imagine, I think in the very first session when Ellie's playing Dana and, you know, trying to save Jake, and she's just like, I think that was totally in line with my code of honor hindrance. I mean, she called herself out saying that I deserved Benny for what I just did. And it was just like, you know, because I was focused on moving along to the next thing. And she says that. And I'm like, oh, you're right. Here's the Benny. You guys are all too busy looking out for Corbus. Someone's got to look out for Ellie. <laughs> oh, comment. <laughs> love you too um yeah anything yeah, I mean, else also i think there's like a, a, there should be a, a limit to some extent in terms of how many bennies can a, a player get on a session or, or should, at least an idea but i mean i know like you mentioned at the beginning like the experience of having dms that don't give enough money so that's one aspect of it which to clarify is, is one of them is definitely not michael right because max i have played with michael but i know should certainly he's a great dm and <laughs> <laughs> just i mean it was a conversation earlier about that but anyway and and no but to say like on the other side of the of the table right because for example for me i was uh thinking for example, through the advance of my character, and I was seeing luck as an edge, right? And and I was thinking, oh, one one extra Benny for session. But then you th you think of how many Bennies I'm getting per session because okay, because based off we we all get one Benny more than normal per se because of the background question, right? So that's that's a start that. Depending on the campaign, we usually you, you can depending on the on the game, right? You can get it or not, or at least the, the sway system is it's not necessarily designed for everyone to have one Benny. I mean, that would be like the luck edge, right? So I don't know. I mean, is the, the logical thing to to conclude is like like the values the the, the Benny, right? If you, if you give two more of them, like. But at the same time, they are fun. So it's better to to be something that it's is positive, right, rather than than negative in that sense. I completely um, disagree that having extra bennies devalues the bennies, or that there should be a cap on how many are handed out during the session. Because no, I'm not I, saying like like a hard cap, but it was I was saying like like general a common sense cap to some extent. Like, yeah, I completely disagree about that. Like, okay. that's what's so fantastic about how Phil runs his Benny economy at this table is that we have them to use for the things that are important with them. And we know that it's easy come, easy go. Well, not always easy come, but it's always easy go. And there will always be more. And that right. you, if you want to nerf yourself, I'm not going to fight you on it, but I'm not going <laughs> to. Yeah. I mean, also to add on that, because I believe there's there's a key thing there, which is the, the setting. Right. And as, as, as Philip mentioned, like 
the evidence said it gives a lot of because uh, correct me if I'm wrong because I believe I, I am. But Everon started in in the fourth edition of Dungeons and Dragons, or is it the third, third. the third third edition? Okay, but it was like I don't know. I have this this feeling like four E was like more more on the like too much things going on. But if you started on the server, okay, that that would be another another thing. But the setting itself informs a lot of of how positive your character in terms of power level, right? Or in terms of possibilities they should have. For example, if you are using Swade to do a horror story, like or a horror type of campaign, then maybe you don't want your players to have that that many options to succeed, right? Because you kind of want the failure, right? That ha that hasn't been my case all. I, I, the way I, I give Benny's, I'm pretty consistent regardless of the setting. The, okay. The thing I do do, it's it's not a cap at all, but the thing I do do, if you notice, I front load giving the Benny's. I try and I'm I'm really generous. I try and be really generous with betting with the Bennies in like the first hour, hour and a half. Then if you notice like the last hour, hour and a half of inning setting, there's very few Bennies that are given. That's the one thing I do. And, and that part, there's, aside from forgetting and not noticing, there is definitely a, a very deliberate nature of that. Of And I think that kind of ties in a bit of what Kevin was saying earlier about, you know, it, it kind of, there's an energy arc of the Bennies. And, and the hope is, you know, I give you a bunch of Bennies to succeed at the things you want to succeed at the beginning, you know, and have the energy kind of go down and know that towards the end of the setting, you need, you may need to start making more decisions and be more deliberate and choiceful about how you, how and what you spend your bennies on and stuff like that. So I do do that. It's also partly like, I always feel, I don't know what I feel. I, I, I take notice when there's sessions where you guys end up with like five or six pennies at the end of the session, there's something that feels off to me about that. So I, I do also do that partly hope in hopes that, you know, you start with a bunch of bennies to use during the session to end the session with zero or one or two bennies or something like that. Right. You will be, you will say like the ideal from a DM's perspective, use of bennies would be like to see your players just having like one, two bennies left, like at yeah. the end of the session. Okay. Zero will be an, a, an ideal or that would be maybe a, a signal of maybe I'm not giving too much bennies. I wouldn't say ideal. It's I think it works well then. You okay. Know? If the last bennies are spent towards the end of the session, that feels like you know yeah, it's probably sense. the right right amount of bennies for the whole session. Yeah, yeah. If a player, for example, has zero bennies for like two hours of the session, like two thirds of a session, that would that would be yeah, something that you should like as a DM maybe like notice and maybe trying to find ways. I, need, I needed to give more bennies in that session. Right. Right. Yeah, but I feel like is that like Benny's to me, what they feel like is a spotlight. And as you get more of them, that spotlight kind of grows. And we've talked a, a, a little bit off the table about, you know, sessions or, or episodes, just kind of how I like to think of them, where, you know, certain characters take more focus and certain characters take less focus. But on a, on a session to session level, having that front load, Benny wave and really kind of especially with the way that this campaign has been set up is really like I can take something and I can take narrative control and say this is something that I want my character to do because I feel like this is something my character should succeed at and between a combination of my my dice pool ability and my my Benny pool 
the chances are really, really, really good that my character will do something in every session that I feel like they're good at. Whereas in something like D&D, where you are sometimes lucky if you get inspiration, and that's about it, you have situations where you have like this rogue that you've grown up on the streets, you've picked a thousand locks, you're lockpicking lawyers like protege, and you go to make a lockpicking roll and you get a nat two. And it just feels bad. And all of a sudden, all the energy just right out of the room. But it's been my experience so far with, with the Benny economy, at least at this table, that certainly when, when there's something that I want to get done that I feel like my character is good at, I have the resources there to get it done, which lets me then not think about the game on a, on a game level about what are my chances of success, but more about what, what feels cool. I th- yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Like in, in the core rules, Bennies are are described as being an esoteric representation of player's luck. But the way I more think about it, kind of um, tying into what you just said, Kevin, is that to me, they represent player agency and choice where everyone, every single person at the table has the choice to not let a failure slide. I mean, it's possible that you can spend all your bennies and still never hit, you know, never roll a four. It's happened for us before. But, you know, foundationally, they represent you have a choice to fail or succeed at something. And to me, that that is huge, you know, because we do have times where we just say, oh, I rolled a three and I'll just let it slide. It's it's not as important as I thought it was or you know, or something like that. Or you say, no, no, I'm, I'm getting, I'm not just getting a four, I'm getting a raise and you pump your bennies into it. Then you get to make that choice. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's, it's narrative impact to me is really kind of what bennies represent. Yeah. Yeah. And that just ties into, I, I, I could, from a DM's perspective, I can totally say that you having used players, having all these options to re-roll the dice during sessions doesn't somehow cheapen the arc of the campaign or the story or something like that. Right. I don't see that there there's, there's no huge negative impact on me as a dungeon master and you walking through encounters I've created or any of that kind of stuff that happens. It doesn't seem to cheapen the game at all. Principally, I think because I can't tell you how many times I've seen you spending bennies on re-rolling and I'm sitting here as a dungeon master thinking you're just wasting bennies. <laughs> right? But but I'm thinking that you're not it's exactly what you you all are describing here is is that you're you're taking this opportunity to shine the spotlight on your character in a way that's important for the story of your character. And in yeah. that sense you're not wasting bennies. You know, so in the combination of those two, it's just like it's rare that you like severely derailing the story by spending bennies, but you're enhancing your own character story by spending the bennies. So I've I've never seen a downside of giving you guys tons of bennies. Right. I mean, on, on the other side, and as a contradicted by complementing at the same time, I think a, a brilliant idea on the Savage World system is is 
Because one would argue, yeah, you can chip chip in the game, and you can like, oh, like there is no possibility of you, you can do whatever you want. That, that's that's not role playing. No, but you have this amazing rule that if you roll uh, uh, one, uh, like a critical failure, you can't roll Venice. You can't use Venice anymore. So it's like this also brings a lot of a lot of thinking in. I want to use this Benny, or I risk the possibility, and I risk the possibility also of a critical failure, which would be even worse than what I already got. You could say I roll a three, and I go, oh, maybe that's not that bad. But if I roll a critical failure, there could be consequences for that. So there is a lot of this. Uh, it brings a lot of interesting strategy to play, uh, interesting decisions to make, and there is also it, it's it, uh, like I think it's the best of war, both worlds because you have. Uh, all what we discussed so far about having player agency and having this idea of no, I want to succeed in this, or I want to emphasize that my character is good at this, or my character, or the narrative of what I think the, the story should go, I should succeed, succeed in this role. But there is also that notion of, and coming back to maybe that that comment on critical roles campaign and the 5e system uh, there's that bad side of oh i wanted to succeed at this and i roll an actual one but there's also that idea of rolling with the punches and just like as a narrative sample oh the the, the luck or the, the the destiny of the or the the dice are bringing me a thing that i wasn't expecting for the story to take in and but i embrace it and i try to make the most the most out of it of this critical failure right and that's a good side of of the failure that also is in Savage Worlds, alongside with the player agency, which I think is just amazing. I mean, yeah. What's next on the docket? Well, let's. I'm thinking. Let's bring this to a close for the evening. All right. I'm Ernesto, and I will be playing Truco. I'm Ellie. I'm playing Dana. I'm Kevin, and I play a peacock. And I'm Michael. <laughs> Goodbye. And I'm Philip, your Dungeon Master. Thank you all for listening. And we'll see you next week on Mourners of Lazar. Pick up on y'all.